Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11. I think we finished up verse 16 last time. And of course, this is the faith chapter. This whole letter is by way of bucking up and correcting the audience, the ones that it's written to. So we went through a a riff in the beginning explaining who Yeshua was, that he's higher than the angels, that he is a more reliable witness than Moses was, that he is a brother to us and an heir, and hence we are heirs, and then that he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All of that was by way of explanation and instruction, and you sort of get the opinion that the people he's writing to have fallen into some doubt, if you will, and this is all by way of sort of getting them back in line. This last part of the book, starting with 11, is by way of encouragement. So what he's talking about here is he's talking about faith, and we've talked about that lots of times before, the mechanism that you use to make things happen is either fear or faith, and it's the same mechanism. If you are afraid of something, or if you have faith for something, either your fear or your faith very well may cause whatever you're pondering on to come to pass. And the mechanism that you use is the same mechanism either way. Fear is the negative side of faith, but it's the same thing. So now he's going to list off some more of the heroes of faith. So we're in verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. We've talked about this in the past. There are rabbinic authorities or rabbinic commentators who are of the opinion that Isaac actually died. The scripture does not say that. The scripture says that he was stopped short of that. So I'm not pushing that idea. But as far as I know, Isaac is the first case of what we could call typical resurrection in the Bible. We have others who are raised from the dead, literally. So, for example, Elijah raised a young boy from the dead. Elijah raised two people from the dead. Paul raised somebody from the dead. Yeshua raised people from the dead. So, a double handful, maybe, of people in Scripture have been raised from the dead. And Isaac is the first one, typically, who that happens to. The point is that Abraham because he believed in the goodness of God and he believed in the promises of God, stepped up and was fully prepared to do what God said, which is to say, sacrifice his only son. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is there was a conflict because on the one hand, Abraham has a promise from God that through Isaac, his descendants will be as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea. So if he kills him, that would seem to throw a wrinkle in that promise. 
And so what he, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, as far as Abraham was concerned, how that promise was going to be manifest was God's problem, not his problem. His only course of action was to simply do what God said for him to do and have faith that God would make it work out, which of course he did. The first promise that Abraham stumbled on was the promise of progeny, of descendants. And he stumbled on that, on that promise when he lay with Hagar and sired Ishmael. The same promise is being tested again. And having failed it once, he's perhaps getting a second shot at it. That God says, okay, you blew the first test, and we've got Ishmael to deal with, so let's test you again in the same promise and see if you'll obey me this time. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. All three of these are basically looking deep. By blessing their children and by asking that his bones be carried up from Egypt, they are all looking, in some cases, centuries deep. They are doing something in accordance with their faith in the promises of God. And one of the things that's important to understand is that they are doing something. Every one of these guys takes action. Take Joseph, for example. Joseph wants his bones carried back to Israel. It's entirely possible for him to say, God, I have faith that my bones will be carried back to Israel, cross his arms over his chest and die. In that case, he has not done anything to put action to his faith. So what he does is he turns around and he says to his brothers and his descendants, I want you to take me back. In other words, he does something to make the promise come to pass. Same thing with the blessings of the sons. God has made promises to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and repeated to Jacob. And in every case, the one who received the promise turned around and verbally passed that promise and that blessing on to his descendants. He didn't just quietly put his hands over his tummy, sit on his blessed assurance and say, okay, I got a promise from God, it'll take care of itself. The act of speaking it into future generations, I believe, is a critical part of making the promises of God happen. Remember we've said in the past, God's will is not self-enforcing. What do I mean by that? There are lots of things that God wants to have happen. Many, many, many of them don't come to pass because God's will is not self-enforcing. For example, if God wishes, as it says in Paul, that none should perish but all should come to eternal life, that's his will. He says so. Is that going to happen? No, it's not. A man has to marry faith with the promises of God in order for the promises of God to happen in the world. He's looking for an agent that will take the promises he makes and either speak them or act on them, and so make it happen. And then once a man does step in and do that, 
then he comes alongside and, if you will, amplifies the action of the man to make it all come to pass. By speaking out that this is what I want to have happen and speaking it to the generations that are going to succeed him, what he does is he's mixing actions with the promises of God and it's that mixture of action and the promise of God that makes something happen. Without us, nothing happens. Without God, we don't have power. God is sovereign. And sovereign doesn't mean that God gets to do whatever he wants to do. What sovereign means is God makes his own rules and there is nobody else that can make rules for God. In other words, he is a sovereign entity. He makes his own rules and nobody else makes them for it. However, once God makes a rule for himself, he follows it. That's his nature. Or that's the nature he has revealed to us. And that's what we depend on. So as you read the promises of God, what you are depending on is that God's nature is such that the things he binds himself with are in fact going to happen. Now understand, nobody else gets to bind God. He's sovereign. You can't bind him. But if he binds himself, as he does with promises and covenants throughout this book, then what we depend on is that he is going to act according to those promises and those covenants. If he was not that way, there's nothing we can do about it. But the point is, he has proven himself over and over and over again that what he says he will do, he will do, and what he binds himself with, he remains bound by. Covenants, promises, etc. If you are acting in accordance with the word of God, God is bound, if you will, by his own word to do what his word says. Now, the problem is, lots of us think we know what God's word says and we don't. There's a whole lot of wishful thinking going on in invoking the word of God. I mean, the people will invoke promises that have nothing to do with them. They'll invoke words of God that really sound good but are not appropriate to the particular situation. And then they get all grumpy when nothing happens. And the reason nothing happens is because they're using the word in the wrong context. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We didn't start at the beginning of the chapter because we finished the beginning of the chapter last time. But the idea that the Hebrews, being a nomadic people, are in fact looking for a city. So Moses here is looking for a reward yet future. He's not specifically looking for something in this life, but something yet for our future. 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. One of the things that we all have is we tend to give more weight to people with skin on. If you've got somebody standing in front of you, you tend to give him more weight than the abstract God that you can't see. And what this is saying is Moses gave 
the God he could not see more weight than the king that he could see. That's the nugget there, that he was able to transcend what most of us have trouble with. You know, you got somebody right in your face that can do you damage. That's where you tend to focus. And what it's saying is, is Moses behaved with respect to the earthly king, Pharaoh, as if he were the abstract one, and with respect to God as if he were the concrete one. I mean, that's one of the great difficulties of serving a God who has no image. Because the present and the immediate tend to grab your attention. You get focused on that, and you get focused on your immediate problem, whether that be a person or a situation. You're afraid for your income. You're afraid not, you won't have enough to eat. You're afraid somebody will beat on you. You're afraid of whatever. But you're focused on the thing that you know, which is the physical. And in that process, all of us periodically tend to lose track of the transcendent God who is, in fact, more real. The thing he's saying about Moses is Moses did it right. 28. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. If you read rabbinic literature, what they say is when the people were up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was bearing down on them, the sea did not part until the first Israelite put his foot in the water. That's much clearer when they crossed the Jordan. If you read in Joshua where they get ready to cross the Jordan, it, it becomes very clear that the river doesn't dry up until somebody starts walking into it. But the idea here again is that somebody had to put action to faith before the sea split or before the river dried up. Again, that's a rabbinic interpretation. In the case of the Exodus, it's not clear that that's correct. But I like the interpretation. Verse 30 maybe? By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Some of this stuff is biblical. Some of it is not biblical. In other words, as you read through that, you can find instances in Scripture where some of those things happen, many of them. But there's also stuff that is not scriptural. And if you read extra-scriptural Jewish writings, a lot of this stuff is then mentioned. A lot of this stuff is coming not from scripture, but extra scriptural writings, which is fine. I mean, it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not true. It simply means it's not scripture. 
Sort of like when you read Josephus. Doesn't mean Josephus isn't true, it's just that Josephus isn't the inspired word of God. Perfectly good history. 39. And all those, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should be made perfect. This last verse 40. The translation of this that I have seen that makes sense to me is basically that that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What it's saying is things were not complete because we weren't there yet. Completion is going to require all of the generations that God has on deck between now and the return of Messiah. So they were not made perfect because there were yet generations to come. King Jimmy says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, they are not made perfect without us. Here's New Jerusalem. God had made provision for us to have something better, and they were not to reach perfection except with us. I'll pick the millennial reign. Until that time, nobody is going to be made perfect and nobody in the past has been made perfect because everybody crosses the line at the same time. It goes back to what we were talking about a couple times ago. When the writer of Hebrews was making the argument that if the sacrifice of bulls and goats could make people perfect, they would have been stopped. In other words, sacrifice made everybody perfect. We're done. No more sacrifices necessary because people are made perfect point I made then, and I will make it again, is there's a logical problem with that. Because one generation having been made perfect by this hypothetical sacrifice of a bull or a goat that could do it, you then have another generation that comes along and you have to do it all over again for that next generation. The continual operation of the tabernacle, there's two reasons for it. Reason one is it doesn't purify the conscience. But reason two is you have new generations coming along every time, and so they have not availed themselves of that. The end of Hebrews 11 is in the same spirit. They have not been made perfect because there are generations to come who are going to need to be made perfect. By that I take it to be that perfection will not be obtained until the end. If a generation is able to achieve it, then that is the end. What we're talking about there, I think, is either the millennial reign or the new Jerusalem. Certainly the new covenant on earth. That's the better thing. The Torah written on the heart, etc. The the writer has been going along explaining in great detail why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We've explained that the only difference between the new and the old covenant is where it's written. The new covenant being written on the heart, the old covenant being written on tablets of stone, but the words are the same. So yes, there is something better, and he's been talking about that all along. Sort of by implication, they're going to get that same thing in the resurrection. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Yeshua, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This whole letter is sort of a buck em up letter because they are being persecuted. They are having doubts about Yeshua. And so he's laying to rest their doubts and he's now encouraging them. And the point he's making is comparing them with Yeshua who endured to the death. He's saying, hang in there guys. You haven't even shed any blood yet. Which intellectually is very comforting, but I'm not sure it's comforting (laughs) when you're going through it. Sort of like somebody looks at you and says, it could be a lot worse. Well, thanks a lot. (laughs) I didn't need to hear that. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that's from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. He's equating their affliction with discipline. He will say in a minute, that discipline while you undergo it is not pleasant, but it's necessary for correction and character development. Having said that, every difficulty and trial that you go through is not necessarily a gift from God. You do your best to navigate through it, because if it's a trial, you're expected to triumph. If it is an attack, you are expected to withstand it. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Abraham, as we just discussed at the beginning of the hour, didn't pass all his tests. He didn't pass the test with Hagar. So the fact that you are going to fail some tests does not mean that your next stop is crispy critters in the dungeon. It simply means you fail a test, you pick up, and you go on to the next one. There's one thing I wish I could get rid of everybody's vocabulary. Oh, I'm being attacked. Most of us aren't being attacked. Most of us are just in difficulties of our own making, quite frankly. Most of us make a lot of our own difficulties. Nothing from Satan, it's nothing from God, it's just human messing up. I would imagine that's probably about 85 or 90% of what we go through. Then there are some things that are tests from God, and then there are some things that are trials from the enemy. It's really hard sometimes to discern those. But I will gently suggest that the first place you ought to look is at you. Start there. Just on the assumption that most of your problems are going to be your own, of your own making. So start there. And if having examined there, you can't figure something out, then go look at the other two and do that in prayer. I'm not suggesting that failing a test has no consequences. I am simply saying that it is not necessarily terminal. Because all of the heroes of faith, at one point or another, have failed tests. Moses did. Abraham did. Jacob did. They all failed tests. At least we have the benefit of hindsight because we can see it was a test. They didn't even have that benefit when they were going through it. They just were in a situation that they had to navigate through. In many cases, they messed it up. But God, as we talked about earlier, gives them another shot. And the whole point is, when you go through a test or when you go through your own stupidity, whichever it happens to be, one hopes then you learn something and you develop some character in the process, so the next time it comes up, you do better. I think that's the idea. This place is difficult by design. 
the fact that living is difficult is not an accident. It's designed that way. Some of you have coached sports teams. You know, I've trained people in the Army. The more difficult you can make the training, the better the end product. As long as you don't kill them. They get grumpy when you kill them in training. But short of that, you typically get a better product at the far side. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I could spend a whole lot of time on illegitimate children and discipline. That's what we're dealing with right now as a society. Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. And again, the idea there is earthly fathers discipline their children, but they don't always do it right, being human themselves. I don't know about you, but raising my children, I have messed up. And the point he's making here is God doesn't mess up. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, which is what I was saying earlier. Discipline and hard training that doesn't break the subject yields a better product. I said that very carefully because discipline and training can be too harsh so that you break the spirit of the one that you're trying to train. And, and then, that, then it becomes counterproductive. But short of that, it's good. Although the one enduring it doesn't think so. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Quick one on bitterness. I've talked about this lots of times before, and I've described bitterness as a poison that you take hoping you'll kill somebody else. And the idea is you take it into you, and it's corrosive and it's destructive. And one of the things it does is it generates shrapnel, which is to say people who are bitter often damage people around them in addition to damaging themselves. Bitterness is perhaps, I don't know if you could call it the worst, but it's right up there. 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. One of the things that is very common among preachers is this idea of repenting before it's too late. In one sense, they are certainly on solid ground because very often in the Gospels, for example, Yeshua says there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth because you didn't listen to me. Having said that, I don't see the purpose of the great white throne judgment if the sentence has been decreed beforehand. 
if the sentence is set and the judgment will change nothing, there is no point in a judgment. What a judgment does is decides between facts and then makes a decision based on those facts. And certainly I am not suggesting delaying repentance. That's not, that's not the message here. But what I am suggesting is I am ambivalent about this message that you hear very often that you sort of got one chance and then it's over. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So what he's talking about there is Sinai, as, as in the uh, exodus from Egypt. So what he's saying is, you have not come to that mountain which could be touched, which is the mountain they came to in the wilderness. Verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So again, I see this as a picture of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which is yet future. And if you tag off of what he was saying in the faith chapter, all of these heroes of faith did what they did expecting to be in the new Jerusalem, but none of them got it during his lifetime. And we very well may not get it in our lifetime either. It may be a resurrection thing. But there will be a generation that gets it during its own lifetime. What he was saying back during the faith, was going through the riff on faith. He was saying all of these guys acted in faith and they did not receive the thing that was promised. But they acted on faith, they lived in faith, expecting, parenthesis, genealogy, to get it eventually in the resurrection. Okay? Or that their, that their descendants would get it. I don't know what they personally thought, but it was a future thing, and they did not receive it. And so here he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It is a promise that we also have, and it is very possible that none of us will receive that promise before we exit this life. And so just like Abraham and just like Joseph and just like all the rest of them, we look forward and we operate in faith even though we may not receive the thing that is promised before we die. There will be a generation that is alive at the time when that happens. I don't know when it is. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And remember again, when, when Abel was killed by his brother, God says that your blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel was the first one listed in this role of faith, whose voice basically still speaks to us through his actions. And what he's saying is, there is a better word through the blood of Yeshua, better than, better than Abel's even though Abel's is still speaking to us. 
See that you do not refuse who, him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when he, they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And I think in both cases that's God. In other words, I think it's the voice from Sinai and then the voice from the throne. 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. See, he's saying at that time his voice shook the earth. So I'm, I'm taking that then to be referring to Sinai. So at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. One of the things that I've, I've been talking about, why didn't God put down the Torah in about two chapters and be done with it and just tell us everything clearly? There are people who believe that if it's not in the Torah, it's not right because the Torah is where everything is written clearly and succinctly. And Well, God doesn't write clearly and succinctly. And the question is why? And the answer is because he is dealing with a rebellion in heaven. It says, for example, in Corinthians, that if the powers and principalities understood what was going to happen at the death and resurrection of Yeshua, they never would have crucified him. Because there are mysteries that are hidden, not only from us, but from the heavenly powers. So it is, in fact, the case that God does not write clearly. And that's by design. So what he's saying here is, his voice shook the earth the first time. The second time it's going to shake the heavens and the earth, which is to say he is going to take care of the rebellion in heaven that is causing so much trouble here on earth. 26. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So the idea is now he's going to set everything right, heaven and earth. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. So he's going to shake the creation, and it's going to be removed. And of course, we know in, Re in Revelation that the whole thing gets rolled up like a scroll, and we get a new heaven and a new earth. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I'm saying that the first time he confined his operations to the earth. The next time, they will not be confined to the earth. They will take care of the problems both in heavens and in earth. Would somebody like to close in prayer?